Hey friends, I'm Brian Doak and this is George Fox Talks Theology. This season on the Theology Channel, we are going to do a new thing. Instead of being here in the studio, which we are for most of our episodes, as you know, we're going to bring you live theology events from the campus of George Fox University. Some of these might be planned lectures in the evenings and some of these might be a classroom environment um, where we're teaching our students about scripture. But whatever the case, you got to imagine yourself in a live setting with an audience there. And if you're watching these, of course, on YouTube, you can see it. And if you're listening, you can think about it and, pl and place yourself right there in the seat of that audience. Really excited for these because they're all so good. We hope you enjoy. Fezzerano, if you don't know, he's a biochemist and president, a CEO, and senior scholar at Reasons to Believe, which is an organization dedicated to communicating the powerful scientific case for God's existence and the Bible's reliability to both Christians and non-Christians. He earned a BS in chemistry with highest honors from West Virginia State College and a PhD in chemistry with an emphasis in biochemistry from Ohio University. And he completed postdoctoral work on cell membranes at the University of Virginia and Georgia. He later worked for seven years as a senior scientist in research and development for Procter & Gamble. In addition to contributing numerous feature articles to Christian magazines, Fuzz has published articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals, delivered presentations at international scientific meetings, and co-authored a chapter, here we go, on antimicrobial peptides for biological and synthetic membranes. Uh, his books include Human 2.0, The Cell's Design, and Fit for a Purpose. Let's welcome Fuzz Rana up to the stage. <laughs> Yeah, my hands full here. All right. Well, you know, um, without question, we, uh, let's see here if I can get the slides up. Ah. How's that? Ah, there we go. All right. So without question, we live in a, a world where there are some pretty weird and bizarre and odd creatures that we share the planet with, Right. And, and some of these creatures are cute and adorable. Some of them are just repulsive. But they all are fascinating. At least they're fascinating to me. And one of the things I like to do when I have a few minutes here and there is to go to these internet sites that have the 25 most odd creatures on planet Earth and just spend time scrolling through the, the pictures of these creatures and reading a little bit about their biology, about their natural history. And, and as I do that, my fascination often turns to a, a, a theological question. Why would God create a world where there are such bizarre and odd creatures that are part of the planet that we share the planet with? And, and since I've, I've got the distinction of being the speaker after lunch, I thought to help everybody kind of get settled into the afternoon groove, that we would spend just a few minutes and I would share with you a few pictures of some of the creatures I find to be uh, utterly fascinating. This is the sea pig. Anybody, anybody ever heard of the sea pig? So this is a creature that lives uh, on the abysmal ocean floor. That, that is the ocean floor at the ocean's greatest depth. And in fact, this creature is a dominant species 
and that abysmal uh, oceanic ecosystem. Uh, it's related to sea cucumbers, and it actually can move around on the ocean floor with these leg-like structures, and it has these suctions, uh, these, these tubes that have suction capabilities to, to consume the debris on the ocean floor. So these are scavengers, but there are these pictures of like the carcass of a whale on the ocean floor just literally covered with these sea pigs. Here's another creature of the sea. This is called the red-lipped batfish. And uh, this is found off the uh, Galapagos Islands. It lives on the sea floor. It's not a very good swimmer. It actually moves around using its fins as kind of modified legs. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, when you look at that, that creature, you know, you just have to wonder what a kiss would be like, right? <laughs> okay, now this is a, a really cute creature. This is called the pink fairy armadillo. And this is found in the desert of Argentina. Unfortunately, this creature is not a good pet. Not because it's not sweet and adorable, it's because for whatever reason, when this animal is removed from its natural habitat, it will die within hours. And nobody quite knows why that's the case. Okay, here's a great one. This is the, the star-nosed mole. <laughs> so this is a, a, about the size of a hamster. It's blind, and it lives in the wetlands of the northern part of the United States, of North America. And it, it burrows around eating larvae and insects. And uh, that the, the nose consists of 25 appendages, and decorating those appendages is about 50,000 hair-like structures called Elmer's organs that give it a high sensitivity to touch and to smell in the environment. Okay, for all of you who are junior high boys at heart like me, uh, this is perhaps my favorite odd creature. This is called the bird-dropping spider. And um, th this is a spider found in the western uh, uh, sorry, on the, the coastal areas of, of uh, Australia, and it's a master of mimicry. And of course, it, it has the appearance of bird droppings to ward off predators for obvious reasons. Uh, and this is, again, a spider that is a master of mimicry because it actually secretes pheromones that mimic the pheromones of certain moss species and uses that to attract the moss to its webs. Now, I've got a joke about... <laughs> the bird-dropping spider that I'm just dying to tell you. But now that I'm president of Reasons to Believe, I'm not sure that I'm allowed to. <laughs> but it's, it's a junior high boy joke coupled with a dad joke because, all right, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Turn off the recordings. No. So what did one bird-dropping spider say to the other? You look like crap today. So. <laughs> okay. I couldn't resist. That's absolutely horrible. Forgive me. <laughs> okay. Um, and then last but not least, this is the, called the thistle down uh, velvet ant. And this is found in the desert of the southwestern part of the United States. And it's actually not an ant. It's a wasp. And the females can't fly. They are, they're flightless. But this wasp has the reputation of having one of the longest stingers of any wasp species. And so it's actually not a good species to mess around with. Uh, but that thistle structure is meant to be a warning to potential predators to stay away. But the point here 
is that we live in a world where, again, there are these really odd, bizarre creatures. And again, it begs the question, why would God create a world where there are these, these kinds of odd creatures? And believe it or not, this question actually represents a significant challenge to the idea that there is a creator responsible for life on earth, believe it or not. Because there are skeptics who would say that while this makes no sense why a creator would create these creatures, now clearly these creatures are playing a role in ecosystems, but is it possible to have a fish that is playing a comparable role to the red-lipped batfish you know, in the Galapagos, off the Galapagos Islands without having red lips, right? So, so the, the point here is that this doesn't make a lot of sense, at least that's the claim, from a Christian worldview perspective where there's a creator responsible for life, but from an evolutionary perspective, the argument goes that evolutionary processes are these unguided, undirected processes that have no real end goal in mind. There are these meandering processes that just happen to create uh, organisms that have certain biological features, some of which are probably byproducts of the evolutionary process that don't play any kind of functional role for the creature, and that they, this, this is just simply what evolution produced, is this, this biodiversity that is wanton, that is essentially, again, a, a unnecessary biodiversity that is just the product of the outworking of materialistic forces. And in fact, there is a, a famous story about a scientist by the name of J.B.S. Haldane. Maybe some of you have heard about Haldane. He was an outspoken atheist, but also a very prominent biologist at the turn of the last century. He was one of the pioneers who established the modern-day discipline of genetics and was giving a lecture, according to the story, and afterwards a woman who was a, a committed Christian came up to him and asked him, well, what does your study of biology tell you about the creator? And according to the story, he said this, if one could conclude as to the nature of the creator from the study of creation, it would appear that God has an inordinate fondness for stars and beetles. And he doesn't mean John, Paul, George, and Ringo. But be, because there are, believe it or not, over 100,000 known species of beetles that exist on Earth. And probably more to, that have not yet been discovered. So when it comes to a, a group of organisms that's emblematic of the wanton biodiversity in the world, it would be, the be, would be beetles, right? Why would God create that many species of beetles, right? That's essentially the... the the objection. Now, as someone who's a, a Christian apologist, you know, and who, you know, barters in the science faith arena, my first reaction is to try to come up with a reason why God would create 100,000 beetles, right? Why, to come up with a reason why God would create something like the star-nosed mole. Uh, what is the purpose? What is the rationale? And as I've thought about this, this challenge over the years, I've come to appreciate the fact that probably that approach is misguided, that it's fundamentally misguided. And in fact, maybe there are over 100,000 species of beetles because God indeed has an inordinate fondness for beetles. And in other words, what if, what if we think about God as a creator differently than thinking about God as an engineer? What if we thought about God as an artist, that, that God as an artist? Now when we look at 
the world that we live in, particularly, again, this, this extensive biodiversity, where we have these creatures that make no sense, these creatures are fascinating to us. And could it just simply be that God, as a creator, who is compelled to create by his very nature, just simply created these creatures for nothing more than his enjoyment? That this just simply reflects the frivolity of the creator who is creating things, again, for his pleasure, just as an artist would create. Is, a, is this a, a possible explanation? And, and I'm going to submit to you today that I think there's something to this, that the tendency that people like me have is to, to think about God as an engineer where everything has its place and its purpose. And of course, I think that is true about the creation. But on the other hand, we neglect to, to recognize a very important aspect of creativity, which is the artistry. Now, if this is a, a, a model or an approach to thinking about God as creator, is there a biblical warrant for this? Is there a biblical basis for thinking about God in this way? And I think the answer is yes. Uh, when I look at the Genesis 1 creation account, it's interesting to me that after each day of creation, God declares that what he has made is good. And I almost get this, this picture of <clears throat> an artist stepping back after doing some work on a piece of art and just pausing for a moment and just contemplating what has been accomplished and just simply spending time enjoying that which has been the product of that artist's hands. It's good. It's good. Taking delight in what's been made. The, the Genesis 1 creation account ends this way. God saw that it had been, sorry, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. The, the word that's translated good in, in the original Hebrew is tov in the Genesis 1 account. And it means good, but it also means beautiful. It means that uh, it refers to something that is created the way that it is supposed to be. And so it's as if God, again, is stepping back and admiring his handiwork, saying this is good, this is beautiful, this is made exactly the way that I intend it to be made. Now, another passage of scripture that I find interesting along these lines comes from Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is one of the creation psalms where the purpose of the psalmist is to reflect upon the creation and then use that as motivation to praise and worship God. So these are songs, psalms of celebration, celebrating God as creator. And one of the psalms that is particularly fascinating as a creation psalm is Psalm 104. You could almost think of Psalm 104 as a creation account itself. Psalm 104 is organized in such a way that different portions of the psalm correspond to the different days of creation. And it's a fun activity just to sit down with the Genesis 1 account and the Psalm 104 account and just look for that one-to-one that -one correspondence. Uh, but the portion that appears to correspond to the fifth day of creation where God creates the, the creatures in the, in the waters... Uh, says this, How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number. 
Living things, both large and small, there the ships go to and fro, and the Leviathan, which you formed to frolic there. Now, in this context, the Leviathan is probably whales or dolphins or porpoises. But what is the purpose that God created the Leviathan for? To frolic among the ships, to play. According to this passage of scripture, this is the purpose of these creatures, is to simply play in the earth's oceans. This, to me, suggests that that indeed we're we're looking at a, a God who is an engineer, but also maybe more importantly, a God who is an artist, who takes enormous amount of delight in creating. And when we start talking about Uh, the the marvelous features of the world that reflect God's artistry, this leads us uh, to an argument uh, for God's existence that I find to be a a fascinating argument that I think is actually underutilized in in this day and age, where most people, when they think about arguments for God's existence, seem to focus on the cosmological argument, or in my case, the teleological argument, the design argument, you know, uh, but oftentimes I think this is an argument that goes neglected, and it's the argument from beauty. And I, I think it's, a, number one, a powerful argument. Uh, it's also an argument that's accessible. It's an argument that I think most people can appreciate, most people can understand, but it's also an argument that has an emotional element to it. it there's something that, that resonates with us in a profound way when we start thinking about the concept of beauty. And a number of philosophers have advanced versions of this argument. The one that I'm going to take a look at uh, this afternoon comes from Richard Swinburne. And there's actually two aspects to this argument. Uh, And it really is an argument, at least the way uh, Swinburne is framing it, as an argument for the best explanation. What is the best explanation for the beauty that we see in the world? And Swinburne writes this, if God creates a universe as a good workman, he will create a beautiful universe. On the other hand, if the universe came into existence without being created by God, there is no reason to suppose that it would be a beautiful universe. So in other words, a universe that displays beauty is exactly the type of universe we would expect for God, the God of the Bible to create is a a universe where there is beauty. Because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. Yet, on the other hand, if the universe is just a brute reality produced through materialistic, mechanistic forces, why would there be beauty in that type of universe? And so Swinburne argues that the best explanation for beauty is that, indeed, the universe comes from a creator. But there's another element to this, Right? In order for, for there to be beauty, there has to be someone to appreciate that beauty. And this is where we come in. That is, human beings made in God's image, we have the ability to identify and to appreciate the beauty of the universe. And again, Swinburne uh, asked the question, what is the best explanation? What is the best explanation for our capacity to perceive beauty? Uh, If we're made in God's image, then we would expect that we would be designed in such a way to appreciate the beauty of the world made by our creator. But as Swinburne argues, if we're just simply the product of, again, unguided, undirected evolutionary 
forces, then you wouldn't expect, in fact, uh, human beings to have any appreciation for beauty. In fact, you would actually expect the opposite, that we would have no sense or uh, no aesthetic sense, no aesthetic sensibility whatsoever. Now, a, a few years ago, I wrote an article about this argument from beauty and posted it on social media. And uh, this atheist who was trolling me started raising some objections. And he, he said, you're just simply making this, this naked assertion that there is no evolutionary explanation for our aesthetic sense as human beings. But yet, if you go into the literature, there's a number of articles written by evolutionary biologists who actually claim they can account for our aesthetic senses, our, our, our aesthetic capabilities. So I thought, hmm. Uh, so let me go into the literature and take a look. And yes, indeed, there are evolutionary models that have been proposed to explain our aesthetic sense, but none of these models are very good. And in fact, the people that are working in this area readily recognize that these models fall short. In fact, this is actually one of the outstanding problems in evolutionary theory when it comes to the origin of humanity is how do we explain, again, our capacity to appreciate and create beauty. When I talk about our aesthetic sense here, it's not just simply, again, our ability to recognize beauty and to appreciate that beauty, but it's also our deep desire to immerse ourselves in that beauty, to contemplate the beauty. But then in turn, as human beings, we ourselves are compelled to create things that are beautiful. Uh, and we, we, we spend enormous amount of energy and effort at creating those things that we think are beautiful. And when we create things that are beautiful, it's not that we just simply are satisfied with that. We then want to show other people what we've made. And we want them to appreciate the beauty that comes from our efforts, from our work. And in fact, we invite people to immerse themselves in the beauty that we've made, to contemplate the beauty that we've made. And so this is a question, why is this, again, something that human beings are, have as a defining quality, as a defining feature? And there's three categories of evolutionary models that have been proposed along these lines. Uh, two, the first two that I'm going to talk about are, are closely related to each other. One of them says that, that there is no reason from an evolutionary perspective for human beings to have an aesthetic sense. It serves no adaptive value. It's just simply a byproduct of evolution. It's what Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Lewentin would say is just simply a spandrel of the evolutionary process. It's just uh, a byproduct that is maintained as part of our nature as human beings simply because it is somehow connected to other aspects of our biology and our, our behavior that are necessary for our survival. That's one model. The other closely related model is that, again, the, this aesthetic sense has no adaptive value. Uh, it's just simply the product of genetic drift that it's just a product of random genetic changes that just happen to produce this quality in us as human beings, where again, it has no adaptive value. It serves no real purpose. It's just, again, maintained as, as part of our makeup because of the role these other genetic networks that are responsible for our aesthetic sense, uh, that it's just part of that network that is uh, contributing in some other ways to our survivability. 
The problem with these two explanations is that it doesn't account for the fact that as human beings, we are obsessed with creating beauty and we're obsessed with contemplating beauty. Uh, this is um, uh, a statement made by a couple of evolutionary biologists. Let's see if I can read this. My eyesight is, being, is failing these days. Aesthetically driven activities are not marginal phenomena or elite behavior without significance in ordinary life. Humans in all cultures spend a significant amount of time engaged in activities such as listening to or telling fictional stories, participating in various forms of imaginative pretense, thinking about imaginary worlds, experiencing the imaginary creations of others, and creating public representations designed to communicate fictional experiences to others. Involvement in fictional imagined worlds appears to be a cross-culturally universal species-typical phenomena. Involvement in the imaginative arts appears to be an intrinsically rewarding activity without apparent utilitarian payoff. If we as human beings are immersed in activities that have no utilitarian payoff, if, this is, if, we, if we are obsessed with this, if this dominates our activity, that, that the cost of that from an evolutionary perspective should be so great that even if our aesthetic sense is a byproduct or just the outworkings of genetic drift, that natural selection should eliminate it, right? Because the cost is too great. A philosopher of biology, uh, Mathen, says this, but why is this good from an evolutionary point of view? Why is it valuable to be absorbed in contemplation with all the attendant dangers of reduced vigilance? Wasting time and energy puts organisms at an evolutionary disadvantage. For large animals such as us, a necessary activity is particularly expensive. So in other words, this, this problem isn't... Uh, well handled by arguing our aesthetic sense is a byproduct of evolution or the product of genetic drift. Now, another collection of models argues that our aesthetic sense actually has adaptive value. It actually serves, uh, serves a role. And so, for example, some people have argued that as human beings, our attraction to places like this, where we see as being beautiful and peaceful, where we want to spend time uh, you know, in, the, in this kind of a setting, that this is actually valuable to us to think that this is beautiful because this is an environment where it's rich in resources. There's a water supply. It's a wooded area that would be rich in food and in materials that would be necessary for our survival. Okay, that's, that's an interesting idea. The problem is we also are attracted to things as human beings that are utterly dangerous, that we find absolutely uh, fascinating. For example, here is the yellow-banded poison dart frog. And as the name implies, it's a poisonous frog. And you don't want to handle this frog because it can kill you. But yet, look at how beautiful this creature is. So why, are we, why do we see beauty in a creature like this if it's dangerous, if, that is the, if, the, if, if the, our aesthetic sense has adaptive value? Uh, or here is the blue viper. Beautiful, beautiful snake, right? Stunning in its beauty, of course, deadly poison, deadly in terms of its poison. Or, oops, here's, here's a, a, 
another picture that I think makes the point. Look at how beautiful this volcanic eruption is. But you don't want to go near a volcano when it's erupting. In fact, a few years ago, I was on the big island of Hawaii with my wife, and the, the volcano on the big island was in the midst of erupting. And so there were these lava flows, and it was quite spectacular to be on the ocean watching the lava flowing into the ocean, right? Unbelievably spectacular. But believe it or not, this was driving the, the state officials nuts because tourists would come to Hawaii and they would put themselves in danger trying to get close to lava flows, right? You know, and so even though everybody knew this is danger, people, dangerous people couldn't help but go as close to the lava flows as they could possibly manage. Why is that? Because it was beautiful. It was stunning. It was majestic. And so we, do, we are attracted to things that are beautiful that, that put ourselves in harm's way. Now, there's another model that, is, that has been proposed that says, well, maybe uh, the adaptive value of our aesthetic sense is that it is uh, connected to our play. And that that, that process of appreciating beauty and, and, and play is connected to our ability to recognize patterns. And that while we in, intrinsically are pattern-recognizing uh, creatures, that, that pattern recognition takes time to develop. It has to be trained. And so our aesthetic sense is just simply part of that training process. Again, the problem with this is that it's not just children that are involved in those things that are of, of aesthetic value. It's, again, adults. And in fact, there are people that will sacrifice everything they have to get really good at, at aesthetic uh, representation of, uh, of the world, um, aesthetic expression. People will invest enormous amount of effort in doing this. And this kind of leads us back to the original problem uh, that we talked about before, which is this, that again, what is, the, what is the value? What is the utilitarian payoff of doing this? Uh, the, the commitment we have to pursue those things that are aesthetically pleasing persists throughout the entirety of our life. It doesn't trail off as we get older. In fact, I would even argue it becomes more and more intense as we get older. We feel more and more compelled uh, to create so then the question is, well, why do we create? Why do we create? And I think the Christian worldview provides the, the best explanation. And of course, this was, again, a point that Richard Swinburne had, has already made, but that we create because we are made in God's image. And as image bearers, if God is a creator, and, and, and part of God's nature is to create with an artistic flair, then aren't we going to do the same thing as someone who bears God's image? Now, when it comes to the image of God concept, uh, this is an idea that is explicitly mentioned in Scripture, maybe in a couple of places, primarily Genesis 1. Uh, and it's, but it's implied throughout Scripture. In fact, the, the image of God is the, the foundation for the gospel. It's the foundation for Christian uh, ethics. And I would argue that the image of God concept explains the Ten Commandments. It explains the, the prophets. It explains the greatest commandment that Jesus uh, declared. That this concept of the image of God permeates all of Scripture. But yet again, Scripture 
uh, mentions it only explicitly in a few places. And when it does mention it, it doesn't really give us a clear definition as to what the image of God is. And so I just want to spend a few minutes talking about how to think about the image of God. Uh, as, because again, if we're going to argue that our aesthetic sense arises from the image of God, we need to have a sense for what we actually mean by that. Now, the historic view of the image of God is called the resemblance view, or sometimes called the substantive view, or the substance view, where it's the idea that as human beings, we have certain attributes that we share with the creator. Though imperfect and limited, we still share these attributes with the creator. So this would include our technical inventiveness, our creativity, our capacity for rational thought. It would include the fact that we are inherently moral creatures, that we recognize right and wrong, that we're spiritual creatures in, that, in the sense that we recognize a reality beyond the physical material world, and we also are creatures who are relational, who seek to make, have relationships with one another and ultimately a relationship with God. Now, this particular view is the traditional view within historic Christianity, but more recently, theologians have argued that this is not the correct way to understand the image of God. Rather, they argue that the one way to think about the image of God is that it's really uh, our role or our function as image bearers, that the image of God is defined by the functional responsibilities that God has granted to us, so that we uh, as image bearers are to multiply and fill the earth. We're to subdue the earth. We are to exercise dominion over the creation. We are to be stewards and, and, and caretakers of the creation. And so the argument is that the image of God doesn't reflect certain qualities we have, but rather certain responsibilities we have. Another view that is becoming popular is the relational view. And the idea here is that as Again, uh, image bearers, the image of God refers to our unique capacity to enter into a relationship with God. Now, I'm, I would take the view, I, 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 I hold the resemblance view, but I would argue that these three views are not mutually exclusive, right? That, that they all can be true at the same time. In fact, I would argue that, that in order to serve uniquely certain functions on earth as image bearers and that we are unique in our capacity to serve in these functional roles that we have to be different than the animals in some way right we have to be different than other creatures in some way uh, in order to do that uh, that th therefore you kind of drift towards the resemblance view whether you want to or not or to uniquely enter into a relationship with God means that you again have to have certain qualities that separate you as a human being from other creatures. And again, you're drifting towards the resemblance view. In fact, I would argue that the resemblance view really subsumes the other two views. So that's the reason I hold that, that particular view. But there is a, uh, another view for the image of God that's a relatively recent theological development. And then the person who's connected with this is a theologian by the name of Philip Hefner. And he argues that the way to think about the image of God is that as image bearers, we are co-creators with God. And so let, let me explain what he's getting at, is that when we look at um, the, the responsibilities that God has given to us, 
We are, again, to multiply and fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to rule over the earth, to be caretakers of the earth. And so even though God has created the, the world that we live in, in, in that he is rightly king of, the, king of the universe, king of the world that we live in, he has given us certain responsibilities. He's transferred his responsibilities to us. And so in that sense, we become co-rulers and co-stewards with God. And so Hefner is extending this idea and arguing that we as human beings are actually co-creators with God. And what he's getting at here is that when human beings were created and we were placed in the Garden of Eden and that we learned to work the garden, we named the animals, that through that process, God was giving us the instructions we needed so that when we began to multiply and fill the earth, that we could take the order that existed in the Garden of Eden and, and spread that order into the chaos of the world outside the garden. That when God created the world, it was an unfinished work, and that we were then as image bearers given the responsibility to finish off the, the creation by bringing, the, again, that order in the Garden of Eden into the chaos of the world around us. And so when it comes to this idea of being co-creators, we are to create on behalf of God. We are co-creators just as we are co-stewards and co-rulers. Because we possess God's essence in the image of God as the crown of his creation, we become partners with God. We aren't passive subjects of God's creation, but have become active participants in which we create new things. As image bearers, we have been imbued with the cognitive and rational capacity to create. We have also been imbued with the will and the desire to create. We are compulsive creators. We have a creative spirit within us. And so if you think about this idea of image bearers, we are co-creators with God, this is pro I think this is absolutely profound. Because now suddenly it means that when, when I begin to think about God as an artist, God is a, a cre a, a, as an a artist who is creative, who creates for pleasure, for enjoyment, as well as for purpose. And then I think about what we do as human beings, where we're compelled to create. Every aspect of our existence, if you think about it, involves creativity. That, that, that I, as a Christian, am deeply attracted to thinking about God as, a, as an artistic creator, God as an artist. I'm deeply attracted to the heart of God if I think of God in those terms. Not that I'm not attracted to God otherwise, but it, it, it just it is, uh, seems to be something very special that in my deepest spirit connects with God when I think about God as an artist. But it also means that when we as human beings create, regardless of what we're creating, we are actually entering into a special type of fellowship with God, right? Because we are now co-creators with God and that what we're doing is, is fulfilling God's expectation for us as human beings. That, that this is the highest expression of what it means to be an image bearer is to create. And, and so the Christian worldview explains the beauty of the world around us. It explains our capacity to, to appreciate that beauty. But even more importantly, it explains our compulsion to create, our obsession with creation beyond anything that is utilitarian. 
that we create for, simply for the sake of creating. We create art for the sake of art. This video podcast is a production of George Fox Digital. To find more material like this, you can subscribe to George Fox Talks on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Our team really appreciates your feedback in the form of likes, comments, and reviews, and we'd really love to hear what you think. To sign up for our weekly email list and to keep up to date with the latest episodes and publications, you can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.